Welcome to the Classic City Church Podcast. For up-to-date information and ways to get involved, please visit us at classiccity.org. If you have a Bible with you, if you would turn in the Old Testament toward the back of the Old Testament to the book of Daniel, chapter 2 of the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 2. Daniel 2. And we started a series last week on Daniel. We're going to talk about it, obviously, the book this week, and then we'll do one, one more next week. But let me give you a little background of Daniel again and just kind of reiterate some of these, these ideas so you can get a good idea of why the author wrote what he wrote, figure out how it landed in the original audience. We always say the Bible wasn't, it was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. It's all, it, you understand it a lot better when you understand how the original audience heard it, why it was written to them, and if we can make it fit in our world. But uh, Daniel was, uh, there's a, if you look at the history of Israel and their there as a nation in 1050 BC, Israel became a monarchy. Uh, they were united. Their, their first king was a guy named King Saul. Second king was King David. Their third king was King Solomon. Each of those was a king for 40 years. I guess Solomon was for 42 years, but basically 40 years each. And particularly during the reign of King David and King um, Solomon, Israel became the most prominent a nation in the ancient Near East. It was a grand, glorious nation doing really, really well. And then it fell off toward the end of Solomon's reign. And in the year 930, when Solomon died, the kingdom split. They had a fissure. And it divided. And, and before that, Israel was made up of 12 tribes. You might think of them as 12 states, 12 territories. And 10 of them formed a coalition in the north, and they retained the name Israel and then two of them, Judah, which was the largest of all the tribes, and then another one, Benjamin, that were in the south, uh, stayed there, and they went by the name Judah. Now, Jerusalem, the capital, was actually found uh, in Judah. So that's what happened. And then and that happened in 930. About 200 years later, the northern kingdom was conquered by a nation called Assyria. It was absolutely destroyed and leveled. And then in, in 586... Judah was conquered by the nation of Babylon. And when Babylon conquered, what they would do, they, they came in and, they, of course, they destroyed the place. But Babylon would take all the wealthy, all the prominent, all the educated. They would take all the craftsmen, people they could use to build their own country. They would take them away and they would become kind of servants or citizens of Babylon. And so this period of in Israel's history lasted for 70 years. And then they were, they were able to come back to their land uh, in 438. But this time of their period is called the exile. And the book of Daniel was written during that time. And it's really the only book we have in the Bible that tells us anything about that period and how God's people lived and how they pursued their faith during this kind of crucial time when they are God's people trapped in a godless world. And when we get to the New Testament, it's interesting. The New Testament writers a few times will use this idea of an exile to describe Christians. Remind them that, hey, just like these guys were God's people in a godless world, you're God's people 
in a godless world. So this book of Daniel is really powerful. It speaks to us about how to live, how to be God's people in, in a culture, in a community that may not be geared up uh, to, to the Lord. So that's, uh, that's what's going on here. And that's Daniel's background. So we get into that. Last week we looked at it and we saw that the book of Daniel is divided up into two sections. There's chapters 1 through 6. Chapters 1 through 6 are the experiences of Daniel and his friends. Chapters 7 through 12 are the prophecies of Daniel and his friends. And we looked at the first uh, bit of some of the episodes Daniel had. Some of them are kind of famous. We know Daniel in the lion's den. We know that uh, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they were before the king and the fiery furnace. And we looked at that. And what we see in the first six chapters of Daniel is Daniel and his friends, young boys, alienated, awkward in this world they don't get. They are still courageous. They take a stand. They, they do not bow their knee. And they're strong. And because of that, God strongly supports them. And comes through in really remarkable ways. And what we see throughout the first six chapters of Daniel, it's really important. We see four different kings that are reigning. And all four kings, because of their encounters with these young boys and their faith and their courage, all say the same thing about Israel's God. And you know what they call him? Sovereign. Sovereign. Every one of them comes to understand that their God is the greatest God. Literally, King Nebuchadnezzar said, there's no God like yours. In, in Daniel chapter 6, after Daniel and the lions then, the king said of, of the God of Israel, he is the living God. He endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. And his dominion will be forever. And so you get these powerful stories of guys putting their faith on the line and putting it on the line, their lives on the line, to be loyal to the Lord and God coming through in powerful ways. And these kings going, whew, God is sovereign. There's a God greater than me. Now, something else really interesting about the book of Daniel is the way it's written. It's actually written in two different languages. Chapter 1 of Daniel is written in Hebrew. Chapter 2 through chapter 7 of Daniel is written in the language of Aramaic. And then chapter 8 through chapter 12 again is written in Hebrew. Now, Aramaic to Hebrew would be sort of like reading, having English versus old Elizabethan King James English. Anybody ever read the King James Bible? Just kind of raise your hand if you've ever done. It's really kind of a, a good, good, try it sometime. <laughs> you know, and you can, you know, if you read it, you can kind of make out what it means, the these, the thous, the yees. But it's just hard reading. It's definitely different than our modern language. It's English, but it's got, it's, you know, it's clunky English. And that's kind of the relationship between Hebrew and Aramaic. But if you were reading a document, and the first chapter was written in English, then the next six chapters were written in Aramaic in, in Old English. And then it went back to normal English. You would kind of realize that there's something about this section that is written in a different vernacular that has a message to it. And so I want to look at this, this section, Daniel 2 through Daniel 7, 
and see what the message is. Now, when you get into Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, Daniel 2 starts with a story where King Nebuchadnezzar is troubled by a dream. He's been having these dreams. He's really troubled by them, and they're upsetting him. And so he wants to know what this dream's about that he keeps having over and over again. So he gets all his wise men, all his sorcerers, all his interpreters, and he gets them together, and he goes, guys, I keep having a terrible dream, and it's troubling me, and I need to know the meaning of it, so I need you guys to tell me the meaning of it. And so the guys look at him and say, okay, king, no problem. Tell us the dream, and we'll tell you its meaning. And King Nebuchadnezzar says, well, I thought you guys were in touch with God. I thought you were the, the great spirit was, you were connected to it. Why can't you just have the dream and tell me what it is? And they were like, well, we can't do that. And so Nebuchadnezzar gets mad at them because they're all frauds. And he's going to kill every one of them. And so Daniel hears about this. And Daniel actually was, although he wasn't the immediate company of the king, he was one of the guys who could be on the chopping block. So he ends up going to Nebuchadnezzar and says, hey, man, I can interpret this dream. Give me, give me, let me go pray, and I'll come back, and I'll, I'll do it. And he goes, okay, you got a chance. So Daniel goes, and he prays, and, he has, and Daniel has the dream Nebuchadnezzar has. He has the same dream. So he goes back to Nebuchadnezzar, and he tells him the dream and the interpretation. So that's what we're going to pick up here in Daniel chapter 2. Look at Daniel 2. And Daniel's interpretation of the <coughs> dream is going to happen in verse 31. And he says this, Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and its arm of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, and its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. This is a divine rock. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on the fleshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain, and it filled the earth. And then if you, so what he is talking about here is, is something that happened in history. And he goes on and he interprets it for him. He tells the king, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he said, the gold head of this statue is the kingdom of Babylon. This is Babylon. This is where we are now. And this is you, O king. And he says, you're the greatest king. We're the greatest empire. But after Babylon is going to become another, ki another kingdom. It will be of, of silver. Then there will become another kingdom. It will be a bronze. And then will come another kingdom. It'll be iron and clay kind of mixed together. And then what's going to happen while that kingdom is in power, there's going to be this stone. There's going to be another kingdom that is going to come. And it's going to be like a little stone. It's going to strike the feet and destroy this whole statue. 
and then it's going to go, grow into a great, great mountain. Now, in history, we know this. After Babylon came the empire called the Media Persian Empire. The Media Persian Empire conquered the Babylonian Empire. And it was there for a while. After Media Persia, Alexander the Great conquered the world. The Greek Empire came into being. And then that was there for a while. But then after the Greek Empire, what came about was the Roman Empire. It was the next great empire. And then we know that during the Roman Empire, Jesus came and he started his kingdom. Now, this is kind of a remarkable prophecy that happens. And what he predicts is the Messiah will come during the reign of the Roman Empire. The Messiah will strike the, the Roman Empire, just a simple rock, but it will crush it and it will grow into a great, great mountain. Now, that's a remarkable prophecy that literally has happened. And we read Acts, I mean, excuse me, in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, he's going to interpret the stone a little more. He says, In the time of the kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to any other person. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. And so this is what he is talking about. He's telling this king, you're having a dream, and this is what's going to, of, of basically how history is going to unfold. And history is going to unfold this way. After your empire of Babylon, there's going to be another one, Media Persia. There's going to be another one, Greece. And then there's going to be the Roman Empire. And during the reign of the Roman Empire, God's kingdom is going to come. It will crush those kingdoms, and it will grow into a great mountain. Now, look at Daniel chapter 7. And again, this is the end, the last chapter, the last of that Aramaic section of the book of Daniel. And look at verse 9 of chapter 7. And Daniel's having a vision. And in verse 9, he says this, As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. His hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire. Its wheels were ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The courts were seated. The books were open. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words of the horn. He goes on about this horn. Then he gets to verse 13. And he says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So again, Daniel's praying and he sees a vision that is parallel to the vision he saw uh, from Nebuchadnezzar. 
He saw four kingdoms coming. Only these four kingdoms were symbolized as kind of, kind of mythological animals, not as, as uh, materials in a statue. And the first one he saw was a lion with eagle's wings. Now, that was the symbol of Babylon. It's a Babylonian empire. The Babylonian empire came. Then after the Babylonian empire, he saw a bear with two sides, one side larger than the other, and the bear had three ribs in its teeth, and it was a ferocious, militant nation, and that's symbolic of the media Persian Empire. Two kingdoms combined, uh, they conquered uh, Babylon, and then they were in power. And then he saw a leopard with wings, and the leopard had four heads. Now, that would have been symbolic of the Greek Empire. Alexander the Great, we know, conquered the world. He died at 32 years old. At 30, when he died, he took his kingdom and he divided it up into four providences for each of his four generals. And that was the Greek Empire. But then after it, he sees another empire coming. What he says is like a ferocious beast. A beast. And this beast has iron teeth. It is like nothing else. And it is ferocious. And then, after this is going on, he has this vision. And he sees the Ancient of Days, all in white. That's Almighty God in heaven. And he's got this incredible you know, situation of thousands of people and people attending him. And he's awesome. And he's sitting on a throne that is blazing fire. The wheels of his throne are fire. There's a river of fire flowing around him. Would you imagine seeing a being like this? It's going to be incredible when we get to heaven and we really actually see this. This is what he saw. And then he saw something very interesting. The Bible says he saw one like a son of man coming on the clouds. Now, there's a way of interpreting a Bible interpretation the rabbis use called stringing pearls. And what that simply means is this. You take a, you read something in the Bible, and you look at where it is all through the Bible, and you kind of string it together. Now, this phrase, son of man, is the number one way Jesus referred to himself. He called himself the son of man. When Peter made the confession that he was the Christ, the son of the living God, he asked the question, who do you say the Son of Man is? Jesus would often call himself the Son of Man. When Jesus was on trial before Caiaphas, the high priest, they kept asking him, are you the Son of God? Are you the Messiah? And Jesus said to him, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God. He basically was saying, yes, I am. Not in the way you understand it. But I am definitely the Messiah. I am the Son of God. And you're going to see me in that position, sitting at the right hand of God. And, and so if you look at the Bible, the Son of Man, usually when it's written in the Old Testament, it just simply refers to a human being, a human being. And, and it usually has the context of human beings in more of a, a lowly context, more of a humbled state as not being divine. Just being a human being, the Son of Man. Now, when you get to Psalm 80, there's a mention of the Son of Man. And the Son of Man in Psalm 80, as it's mentioned, is actually mentioned sort of as a Messiah. 
It's interesting. And then the only other place in the Bible where the Son of Man in the Old Testament, where it's used a lot, is in the book of Ezekiel. In the book of Ezekiel, he's often called the Son of Man. But usually when Ezekiel's called the Son of Man, it's when he's doing some sort of prophetic act that implies he is absorbing punishment for others' sins. There's this one time where Ezekiel goes out and he has to lay on his side for 40 days and then he lays on his other side for 40 days. He is sort of understood to be paying for the sins of Israel by doing this. And during this time, God calls him the Son of Man. And so you have this idea throughout the New Testament. You string it all together. The Son of Man means to be human. It means to be genuinely human in all its ways. Be be broken to be fallible, to be not divine, to be everything a human is. Son of man also means to bear the sin of others. But then the son of man also is Messiah. And then when we get to this passage, it's one like the son of man. And we see that he comes before God and he is given glory, majesty, and sovereign power. He is one with God. And so we see there is this figure, the Son of Man, who is completely human. But he is divine. And to him is glory and majesty and sovereign power. And every nation will serve him. And he uses the word worship. That word worship is the way we treat God. He will be the same as God. And so we we see, obviously, a depiction of Jesus hundreds of years before he came. The Son of Man. Now, when you think about the audience of this day, one, one of the things they were going through, the people of the Jewish people, is they were fighting a battle in the year 168 with a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes who was a persecutor, a ferocious persecutor of Judaism. He was one of the Greek uh, leaders, and he, he ferociously persecuted the Jews. He went in, he slaughtered a pig in the temple, he put an idol to Zeus in there, he took pig swine guts and took them, put them all over the place, all over the body. He desecrated, he, he murdered and killed many and there was a revolt against him that they won. And so if you read a lot of the book of Daniel, it's speaking to this issue. Now, if you were somebody, a, a Jewish person going through that, and you had this book, and you started going, you know, this is a tough time we're going through. But look at what our God said. I mean, during the Babylonian Empire, he told them there would be a Greek empire. Media Persia would come, and they did. And he said the Greek empire would come, and it did. And, he, and they could see the sovereignty of God in a remarkable way in this book. That, that God is the ultimate controller of history. In fact, when we use the word history, it literally is H-I-S, his story. History is a story God writes. And when we think of God's sovereignty, it is not just that he has more power than anybody or he can do whatever he wants to. It is is not just the biggest guy on the block, although he is that. It is literally the sovereignty of an author over his story. He has complete control. 
complete control of it. If, he, if there's an empire named Babylon and he's done with them, he can bring in another empire. He, can, he, he moves these things around like he wants to. That is our God. He is sovereign. And what we see this word say about Jesus is, is the sovereign story of Almighty God. He is a stone cut without human hands. He did strike that statue during the reign of the Roman Empire. He is going to crush all kingdoms, and his kingdom is growing into a great and a massive mountain, and all nations and languages on the earth are serving him today, and it is an awesome thing. We see the, that what we see in history, what this book said would happen, literally has happened, and it's powerful. And what that says to you and I in our lives is one powerful message. God's sovereignty is not just a factor. It's not just the most prominent factor. A sovereign God is the only factor that matters. And it compels you and I to live a life that's courageous and a life of faith. In a life of confidence and assurance. Now that's a great thing to get on a macro level, but how does that affect us in our personal lives? How does it affect you where you are? That your God is sovereign. It's a real powerful verse in Ephesians chapter 1. It's verse 11. It says how God chose us, he predestined us. Then it says at the end of, of that verse, it says, he works all things out according to his will. He works all things out according to his will. Now, what does that mean in your life? That God works all things out in according to his will. Um, every now and then, you know, my wife, when she works at night, will work in front of a TV. She'll have a show on, just some show. She's working, doing stuff, working on Bible studies, but she'll just have a show on in the background. I will have football on in the background sometimes. <laughs> we both do that. But sometimes I'll walk in and we'll start talking, and one of the shows she'll watch is these, it's one of these cooking competition shows. Anybody ever seen these things? Uh, what's the guy's name? Gordon Ramsay. And I, I remember going... I used to be an Amer we used to be American Idol fans, and I kind of miss the the British guy who would just tell people the truth. And so I thought this he kind of this guy throws things at people. I mean, that's just kind of cool. I miss the British, you know, obnoxious. That was just kind of neat how he did that. So I just thought, let me see a little bit of this, and I'd see him. And, and they do this thing in this show. It's really incredible. They test the chef. And what they do, they just give him, a, they give the chef a bunch of ingredients, you know, an onion, some chocolate, some wheat. They just give him a bunch of ingredients in a big old bowl, and they say, make a great salad, or make a dessert, or make a great main course. And they just have all these random things given to him. And they have to kind of, you know, they have to put it all together. And, and, and what you want to do, what you want to find out is, does this chef have the wisdom and the skill 
to take whatever is given to him, whatever happens, can he take it and make something delicious out of it? Is he really able to do that? It really tests his skill, it tests his wisdom, it, it tests his aptitude. Does he have the, you know, does he know how, you know, how to mix ingredients? Does he know when enough's too much? Does he know how long to cook something? Does he know when to stop you know, with the baking? It just tests the skill of, of the cook and the chef. And this is what goes on in our individual lives as we know and as we walk with God. Is that he gets the ingredients that are us, the ingredients that are you and me, all the ingredients. And you might be sitting there thinking, well, I'm still struggling with this sin. I still have this habit in my life I can't break. You know, I've had these things happen in my past for my family, and I just, they, they linger to me. I've had this horrible experience. I'm shy, I'm weak. I'm not this, I'm not that. And we just think we're giving God these broken ingredients that he just kind of goes, oh, I'm flummoxed. You know, I don't know what to do with this. This is a bad mix. Listen, God's never flummoxed. He can take the ingredients of your life and of your circumstances and make something spectacular out of it. That's what He does over and over and over again. That's what he is in your life to be. The one who does that. And this is the message of Daniel. God is sovereign. He controls history. He exhibits his sovereignty in the man Jesus Christ, what he did through him, what he's doing through him is absolutely the the march of a sovereign God through history. And that same God wants to take your life, the ingredients, the elements of you and work them out to where your life glorifies him in a powerful, in a beautiful, in a special way. And that's where the message of Daniel is supposed to land in our personal lives. He's the great master chef. And he wants to do something special in the ingredients that are you in your life. Let's pray together. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this powerful record of this powerful life. We thank you for the just sort of the, the, the truth and the force of it in our lives, that you're a sovereign God, that you have taken history, a broken planet, a broken history. And you brought your son into it. And you did through him exactly what you said you'd do. You struck when you said you'd strike. And it has grown into a great and a mighty mountain. And it fills the whole earth. And I just I thank you, Lord, that what you've done in history and how you've exhibited your sovereignty 
in the life of Jesus, as we connect to you through him, I pray you would exhibit that sovereignty in our own life, that you would take the ingredients we give you, the ingredients of our broken existence, and you put them together and you combine them and you work with them in such a way that you produce something spectacular. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.